So a pastor named Bob Deppenball once told the following story. It was about his friend, a man working in his garage. This guy was the type who did not want to be disturbed or interrupted during a project. The wife knew this well. She walked into his workplace and stood quietly for a few minutes. He waited just for the right time to speak. The husband finally looked up, and that's when she knew she could say what's on her mind. Very serenely and calmly, without a hint of panic in her voice, she told him this. The house is on fire. The pastor used this illustration to make this point. Sometimes a matter is so urgent and the situation is so dire that it's okay to skip the socially accepted norms and formalities. No need to wait. It's okay to yell right away. Fire, save yourselves. As we enter the body of the letter to the Galatians, we see that's exactly what Paul's going to do. He had to write verses 1 to 5, of course, It's like how we have to make sure to write our names at the top of the homework before we turn them in. But as soon as he's in the clear, Paul gets to the point. I'll speak more about this urgency in a moment, but let's first read Galatians 1, 6 to 10 together and ask ourselves, where's the fire, Paul? If you're using your pew Bible, you'll find Galatians in uh, page 810. Page 810, 810. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Or do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So I'll comment on this passage as a whole before I break it down into parts. The Galatian churches have this dubious distinction. They're the only recipient of Paul's letters to be lambasted and criticized right from the beginning. Paul usually warms up first. He starts his letters to the Romans, the Philippians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians with thanksgiving for them. More of the same in Philemon and 2 Timothy. Even to the problem-filled Corinthians, he says, I thank my God always concerning you. In 2 Corinthians and Ephesians, we have, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy and Titus are closer to Galatians. In all three, Paul gets right to the point, 
but the tone is different in today's passage. Timothy and Titus get instruction. The Galatians get correction. Paul's amazed, but not in a good way. It's not amazing grace, it's amazing disgrace. There's so much shock because it hasn't been long since these churches have been founded. At most, we're talking about a few years. At this time, they should be hungry for the pure milk of the word. They should be rooted and built up in Christ and established. They should be experiencing growth spurts, not stagnation and famine. As soon as the news of the Galatian apostasy reached Paul's ears, he picked up his pen and wrote. He would much rather be there in person, as he says in chapter 4, but this mode of communication will have to do for now. If our loved ones, family, and friends turn away from the gospel, we should have the same sense of urgency. When someone gets the good news wrong, there's bad news, all right? The battle for the gospel is the battle for souls. Look at verses 6 to 9 again. Note how the word gospel in both this noun and verbal forms are found in each verse. The gospel is the starting point and the central point. It's the difference between God and man, heaven and hell. Blessing and cursing. Structurally speaking, I observe three parts. First, Paul states the specific problem in verses 6 to 7. He confronts the reality. And then he goes from reality to an if in verse 8, a hypothetical illustration. In verse 9, he restates the idea of verse 8. Suppose anyone preaches a false gospel, the Galatians should declare them cursed. And then there's another second hypothetical scenario in verse 10. Suppose that Paul's living as a people pleaser, then he would not be a servant of Christ. So based on the structure, I derived three principles from the passage. I call them the three duties of the gospel-centered church. One, stay with the true gospel message. That's verses 6 to 7. Stay with the true gospel message. 6 to 7. Two, speak against false gospel preachers. Verses 8 to 9. Speak against false gospel preachers, 8 to 9. Three, simulate brave gospel servants. Simulate brave gospel servants. That's verse 10. First, stay with the true gospel message. I'm going to spend the most time on this point as I'll be formally introducing the Galatian problem. When it comes to the gospel, the Galatian churches were headed in the wrong direction. They were moving away from the gospel, so they were moving away from God. This was a grave situation, and it serves as a warning to us. 
turn to a false idea of grace and you'll turn away from the true God of grace. Consider the manner in which he called us. Right there. So underline, highlight, circle, bracket the phrase in verse 6. In the grace of Christ. Do it literally or figuratively, but always in your heart. Make sure you understand it well. If we want to properly define grace and say what it is, we must be able to say what it is not. Grace is not work, and work is not grace. We read in Romans 4.4, To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Romans 11.6 tells us, If salvation is by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. It's important that we never confuse grace and works at this juncture. Sure, genuine faith produces good works, but that's only after conversion. At the moment you're saved, there is only grace. Grace and works do not mix as a recipe for redemption. They don't combine as the means of salvation. I was thinking about things that do not mix. Grace and works are like light and darkness, as the Bible tells us. Oil and water, as we know in life. And at least in my household, Grace and works are like good parenting and good sleep at night. You can't have both. That means God did not call us because we were great and we were doing great. Jesus died while we were still sinners, when we were enemies, foolish, weak, base, and despised. 2 Timothy 1.9 is similar to today's passage as it tells us of God who saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. God didn't call us because he owes us. He called us because of his will and his mercy. Our merit and boasting are excluded. How important is this? Remember, our standing with God depends on our understanding of the good news. So we got to get this right. This message is so important that I tell this every week during the sermon, and I hope you do regularly in your life as well, and I must tell it now. God created us in in his own image, But now we're all in need of his grace because we become sinners in thought, word, and deed. We deserve condemnation and punishment in hell to be far away from his presence. But God sent his son. Christ graciously gave himself through, though he himself never sinned. He died on the cross, paying the penalty for our failures so that we may have eternal life. He was buried, he rose from the grave, 
and he ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. The proper response to the gospel call is repentance and faith. Turn from sin, turn to Jesus, and ask him to save you. There's nothing we can do to earn our place in heaven. We are but poor beggars, humbly coming before a king. We, can, we confess what we sang earlier. Nothing in our hand we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Naked come to God for dress, helpless look to him for grace. This is God's promise of grace. This is the apostolic message, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. If you have not responded to it yet with the heart of repentance and belief, do so today. If you're still confused about the gospel message or the concept of grace, talk to me or anyone you've seen on stage this morning. We have resources to help you, such as Christianity Explained. And beware of what's out there. The devil knows the truth the value of the true gospel, and he'll do anything he can to prevent you from understanding it. So now is the time to talk about his tactics. At the end of verse 6 and at the beginning of verse 7, we hear about his counterfeit message. And then after the semicolon in verse 7, we hear about the counterfeit messengers themselves. In every place and time, the Father calls his own by grace and truth. Meanwhile, the Father of lies does not stay silent. If there are exceedingly great and precious promises of God, there will also be a black market of counterfeits and rip-offs. Where there is wheat, there will be tares. As Christ sends out the sons of the kingdom to fulfill the great commission, the wicked one sends his false apostles and deceitful workers. Specifically, among the Galatians, there's a persuasion that does not come from the God who caused them. Someone's trying to get them off track from the race. The so-called gospel they preached was not merely different in vocabulary, presentation, or emphasis. Paul's not here to criticize certain methods and training programs. What's presented to the Galatians is simply not the gospel. The Judaizers were worse than the ones mentioned in Philippians 1, 15-18, because at least they got the content right, even if their motives were off. I mean, sure, there are overlaps in certain points, It's not like these troublemakers were atheists or Buddhists. There were fellow Jews like Paul, monotheists. But unlike Paul, they do not understand the proper relationship between the grace of Christ and the works of the law. They compelled Gentile Christians to be circumcised. They wanted these new believers bound to the Jewish laws, observing their holidays. In short, they were called Judaizers, meaning they wanted to turn non-Jews into full-fledged 
Jews. But by doing all of this, they were perverting the gospel of Christ. That word to pervert is used elsewhere to describe the sun turning into darkness, laughter into mourning, and joy into gloom. So these Judaizers sought to snuff out the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ and steal away the joy of the Holy Spirit. There are at least three motivations behind this Judaizing doctrine. First is pride. There's a leveling effect of the gospel. If all of us are saved only by grace through faith alone, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin and categorically sinners. Judaizers would rather exalt themselves above Gentiles. So they force non-Jews to become Jews. To scare the Galatians into bondage, they most likely repeated the words in Acts 15.1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. But the Judaizers were the real cowards. They were secondly motivated by fear. Preaching free grace was costly. Paul taught believing Gentiles, that they don't need to change their ethnic identity. He says later in this letter, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Many Jews were not happy with this. They went after Paul and persecuted him. As a result, he bore in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Meanwhile, the Judaizers saw what they did to Paul. And they didn't want all that pain and suffering. They wanted to cool the fiery persecution, so they watered down the gospel. They tried to seize the offense of the cross. Meanwhile, Paul preached that the cross of Christ is our only boast. And that leads to the Judaizers' third motivation, vain glory. Like the Jews of Pisidian Antioch in chapter 13 of Acts, the Judaizers were filled with envy for Paul. They saw many becoming his disciples. It's as if Paul's getting hundreds of followers on Twitter, thousands of friend requests on Facebook or Meta or whatever it's called now, tens of thousands of subscriptions on his YouTube channel. So they like to steal some of Paul's devotees and add to their number. They'll use a divide-and-conquer tactic, separate the Galatians from Paul, isolate them, win them over to their side. The Apostle Paul reveals the plan of these wolves in chapter 417. They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. Unlike these Judaizers, Paul was not motivated by pride, fear, or vainglory. Instead, he was jealous for the saints with the godly jealousy. He's like a parent who arranged the marriage between his daughter and the groom, but the daughter's now running off with some unworthy suitor 
an evil seducer. Like a concerned father, he urges the Galatians to stay with the true gospel message. Like a mother bear, Paul turns to protect them from intruders. That leads to the next warning heeded by gospel-centered churches. Speak against false gospel preachers. As I said earlier, this one principle is based on two essentially same statements. Let that reinforcement remind you of its importance. Paul's saying when it comes to the preacher, familiarity or unfamiliarity doesn't matter. He could care less whether the speaker is ordinary or extraordinary. He wants to know what is the person saying. Whether we intentionally invite messengers and teachers or unwittingly welcome strangers and angels, we must evaluate their words. Is the messenger like the angel of Revelation 14, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth? Or is the messenger like Satan in 2 Corinthians 11, who transforms himself into an angel of light? Don't follow your eyes but listen with ears what they preach. But we look around today and yesterday and probably tomorrow, and there's no shortage of angelic visions and encounters in popular movies, books, and stories out there. It's hard for me or any of us really to validate or discredit them. I'm told you have to be there. When I hear such things, I like to ask, usually, what they've heard instead of focusing on what they've seen. Because in the end, does it really matter who said it? Isn't it the message of the cross that saves us? And if they preach the false gospel, it's time to speak against them. Paul shows us how, and it's remarkable what he says, Now, if you agree with me that Galatians is the first of Paul's letters, then in verses 8 and 9, we are looking at the very first command or imperative the apostle wrote to a church. Let him, the false preacher of the false gospel, be accursed. And not just once, there's a double curse there. Yes, the same guy who wrote the chapter of love in 1 Corinthians 13 began his letter-writing ministry with this call for intolerance. That word for accursed is anathema. It's a vitriolic reaction to grave offenses, severe punishment for blasphemy, harsh consequence for broken oaths. It's a word that has a long history beyond first century. It's a word famously and frequently used by the Roman Catholics in response to the Protestant sola doctrines. By the way, if anyone tells you that the Protestants and the Roman Catholics believe the same gospel, tell them to go and read the decrees of the Council of Trent. There's no way, or, no way around the fact that anathema is a strong and sharp word. 
Paul reserved it for those who promote a false gospel. We must follow his example and speak against false gospel preachers. Let me offer two practical applications of this idea, one corporate and the other individual. First, the corporate application. Galatians 1, 8-9 is, in my mind, one of the most important proof texts for congregationalism. Congregationalism means that each local assembly of believers has authority to govern themselves according to the scriptures. That authority does not sit at the top of some denominational hierarchy or a local presbytery. Of course, elders do have authority at each congregation, but even that comes with the voluntary approval of the membership. At the grassroots level, each professing saint has power, and with great power comes great responsibility. And that responsibility is to accept the true gospel and welcome its preachers and reject the false gospel and expel its preachers. The anathemas of verses 8 and 9 are not pronounced only by the pastor, elders, or deacons. It's up to all of us to say to the false gospel preacher, let him be accursed. This is a group effort, a teamwork, a corporate duty. Here's an individual application now. Flip the perspective. Imagine yourself as someone trying to join a Galatian church. How would you assure them that you're not one of those people that Paul warned about? Since my time here, I've encouraged you to write a short 500-word testimony that includes a gospel presentation. It's certainly reassuring to know that we're baptizing and or adding to our numbers only those who prove that they know the good news and they can articulate it biblically. Even for those who have been members or Christians for a long time, I think it's a great spiritual exercise. You can also use it as a personal gospel tract for family, friends, and neighbors who do not know Jesus. And that's what Paul would do. And if we're going to imitate him, if we're going to stay with the true gospel and speak against false gospel preachers, we're going to need courage. And that leads to verse 10 and to the third duty of the gospel-centered church, simulate brave gospel servants. There's no getting away from the fact that in life you're just one person, you're not omnipresent, and you can't go down two paths at once. You can't have your cake and eat it too. The Bible confirms this truth. Moses advised his people, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Elijah asked at Mount Carmel, How long will you falter between two opinions? 
if the Lord is God, follow him. If, but if Baal, follow him. Our Lord himself drew the line. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the apostle to the Gentiles presents another choice. Will we serve people or will we serve Christ? Paul made his own decision in verse 10. Live for God as a bondservant of Christ. That's what he'll do. The Judaizers made their choice to persuade men and please the masses. Now for us, do we have the courage to stay with the true gospel message and speak against false gospel preachers? If we are righteous by faith, can we be bold as a lion? As I look at myself, I admit that there's a people-pleasing tendency in me. It matters too much what others think. My mood and emotions can be swayed back and forth by the opinions of the crowds. I want to be like King David, but I'm more like King Saul. My self-judgment oscillates being between being too lenient and being too harsh. So I try to draw courage from three resources. Maybe these resources will help you too. First, no surprise, open your Bible and find courageous gospel servants in there. Start with Paul since we're already studying Galatians. Here's another important passage from him, this time in 1 Corinthians 4, 1-4. 1 Corinthians 4, 1-4. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Paul tells us that we have the audience of one. How liberating is that? Paul and other servants of Christ in the Bible have that sort of confidence that's worthy of imitation. There are two more resources for finding worthy, brave gospel servants. They're outside of the Bible. I say that you should study church history and your church directory. First, Church history is filled with exemplary believers. They're pastors, theologians, missionaries, laymen who inspire us. As a teenager, I remember picking up a modern version of John Fox's Book of Martyrs. The book's filled with stories of faith and the ultimate sacrifice of believers. Just as the 16th century original encouraged English Puritans under Catholic persecution, we find motivation in our day to be brave for Jesus. Read it for yourselves and your children, grandchildren. I think we have a copy in our church library. 
Finally, if you want to actually meet brave gospel servants, pick up a church directory. As the pastor, I'm going to uh, flatter my congregation for a bit. Don't be embarrassed. I think one of the wonderful benefits of having a church with older members is that we have those who've been serving Christ for a long time. There's depth, conviction, and maturity that comes with age and experience. We can simulate brave gospel servants right here at our church. If you're a younger brother or sister, seek them out. And if you're one of those older servants, make yourselves available to us. We need your example and leadership if our church is going to continue and grow. Time and space separate us from Paul and heroes of the past. But you, we have you here in our time and here in our space. I pray that our church can be a factory of brave gospel servants. May we say together as Paul did, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Let's say that and let's sing our common confession together. Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth, the true gospel, that you are the God of truth, and that you are the God of grace and mercy. And Lord, we're thankful that it has been revealed to us by some faithful servant of, uh, of you. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher when we were young. Maybe it was our own parents. Maybe it was our pastor who preached to us. Maybe it was an evangelist. Well, whoever that was, we're thankful, first of all, to you. Because you are the one that established this message. You are the one who sent your son. Called us in the grace of Christ. And with this heart of gratitude, Lord, we want to, we want to promote the gospel in our church. And for those who would dare to insult you, and to distort the gospel. May we not sit idle, but help us to speak up. Help us to be brave. Find that courage not in ourselves, not in some human motivation, but because we serve you, because we love you, because we thank you, and we praise you, and we pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.